This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Welcome to the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. For over a half a century, Bob Woodward has been gaining access to and reporting on people in the highest positions of power in the United States. And when it comes to presidents, he has gone toe-to-toe with nearly everyone since Richard Nixon. And if you look at Nixon, sorry, he failed. Right. Why? Because of you. No, 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 that's not the, I mean, there's, there's, there's more. Woodward is every inch the reporter, not at all someone inclined to editorialize. But in his many hours of conversation with Donald Trump, from before the election in 2016 through the initial fallout of the COVID crisis, Woodward came to see Trump as not just a disruptor, but a real danger to the nation. He's now released the audio recordings of some of those conversations in a new book called The Trump Tapes. We hear Donald Trump's state of mind in his own peculiar words, but we also gain a greater appreciation for Woodward's process and his craft. Bob, you are now out with something very unusual. You've been publishing books, obviously, since Watergate about the American presidency. Now you're publishing with The Trump Tapes an edited version of your raw materials, your tapes with Donald Trump. And I have to ask you, after your first book about Trump in 2018, which was hardly a flattering portrait, why do you think he went on talking to you incessantly? Well, this goes into the state of his mind. It is a confidence that he can sell himself to anybody I'm sure you remember this about George Cannon, the famous father of the containment theory and practice of containing the Soviet Union. And Cannon had this phrase, the uh, treacherous, treacherous curtain of deference, that you go into the Oval Office and people just melt. And you have Trump's dominant personality with this treacherous deference that takes place. And uh, he he thought he was in control. But, okay, but you were not intimidated by the Oval Office. Why would you be? You can't be. It was, again, one of these things Trump just decided he's going to do. Lindsey Graham told him, well, said uh, he won't put words in your mouth. (laughs) And I don't put words in his mouth. So there I am. 
in the Oval Office before the Resolute Desk. He has his props, pictures of he and Kim Jong-un, and we start talking about 2016, why he won. And and this is something historians are going to be exploring for 100 years. And my analysis was it's Barbara Tuckman's notion of the dying of the old order, that the old order was dying in the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. And Trump got that intuitively, not intellectually, and he just jumped in his chair when I say, said, yes, and I'm going to do it again. Of course, he did not. Yeah, but I, I remember watching you early on television one morning, and I was a big loudmouth about Trump from the start. And maybe it's because I'm here in New York and years of listening and watching Trump, and I've been wrong about things in the past, but I, I, I thought this guy was pernicious and, and, and worse right from the start. And I was watching you on Fox, and you, it was true that you were saying, and, some, and many people were not, that he should be taken seriously and that he might win. But I didn't hear you being hypercritical of him like many in the media were back then. And I thought to myself, God, Woodward is, Woodward is really smart because Woodward wants to get no, to this no, story. Don't. Were you playing him? No, of course not. Okay. I, uh, look, if you've listened to these tapes, I was combative with him all the time and say, hey, wait a minute, what are you doing? But I really you know it's the Graham Greene line about don't despise your enemies. They have a case, and you need to understand the case. And in the case of Trump or anyone, it's who are they? And you want to come reasonably with a blank slate. Okay, I'm here to listen. I've always thought of Trump in many ways, is the most transparent president of our lifetime. That what you see on television is not dissimilar from what you get in private. By talking to him privately, and you had endless conversations with him in person, on the phone, by surprise, and on and on and on, what did you learn in private that you were not getting in public? That's an important question in this process, which was strange. I could call him anytime. (laughs) He would call me. Elsa, my wife and I, uh, she used to joke, there are three of us in the marriage, and the phone would ring. And is it one of our daughters? Is it a friend? Is it a robocall? Or is it Donald Trump? (laughs) And it would often uh, be Donald Trump. Here's the... uh, the variable. I could ask follow-up questions. It wasn't a press conference or a stop at the helicopter on the White House lawn, which all presidents, uh, Trump indeed included, control the environment. And no one can say, hey, oh, wait, wait a minute, you didn't answer the question. So I would have sessions with him, like after the first impeachment, I literally was the interrogator. Why did you do this? How can you do this? Look at that. Or most importantly for me, the 
experts like Dr. Fauci telling me this Trump's not listening about the virus. Well, what's he not listening to? These are the 15 things he needs to do that they could not talk to him about because he would not pay attention. There are times in the interviews where you tell Trump what to do. Talk to Bill Gates about the pandemic response or go ask Ivanka if he should apologize for the call to the Ukrainian leadership that led to the first impeachment. Maybe talk about those moments. And, be- and before you do, let's, let's play uh, one or two. Who's the person you trust most in the world? That's an interesting question. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I don't want to get into it because I I have so many people. I have great family members. I trust my family members. Ask them if you should apologize. I think they, I think if I apologized, I think if I apologized for something that I did nothing wrong. I, I, it's, it's a question of. How can I apologize for making a decent statement, a very, very appropriate statement? We got another one here about Bill Gates. Let's hear that. There are all kinds of wise people out there. Have you been able to talk to Bill Gates? He called me a little while ago. What do you think of Bill Gates? You know, I do not know him. I just know he spent billions of dollars on fighting these diseases, and he's very informed. He gets a lot of money from the U.S. government to fight. Yes, he does, but he puts up a lot of his own money, too. And uh, you know about when somebody puts up money, it means they care. Somebody like that you need to listen to. Mm -hmm. And you can say, okay, I'll weigh that. I will talk to all the business people. I'll talk to the Fauci's. I'll talk to the experts. And then out comes the, you know, you never make a perfect decision. Right. But out comes the best decision. I have to ask right away, Bob, I, the notion that you are talking to a guy in his 70s who's the president of the United States and you're telling him about the rudiments of how you make a decision. You talk to a lot of experts and come to conclusions. I mean, were you thinking to yourself, I'm talking to an idiot? If, if I may, look, I think what he did as president is worse than criminal. Uh, and I think it's provable on many levels in many ways. But I think it's a mistake to call him or think of him is an idiot because he navigated something what 46 people have in the history of this country. He won the presidency. the presidency. You want to criticize that, certainly, and examine it. Uh, but I, I think in 2016 in my business, and I put myself at the top of the list, we were not inquisitive enough about Trump because we loved the show and the pyrotechnics. I think the foreign policy issue that's concentrated upon the most here and is the mo- perhaps the most revealing is North Korea and his relationship with Kim Jong-un. Here he is joking with Kim Jong-un about the little rocket nickname. Let's listen. We've always gotten along great. I said, did you ever hear the song Rocket Man? He said, no, no. Did you ever hear of Elton John? No, no. I said, I did you a great favor. I called you Rocket Man. He goes, 
You called me Little Rocket Man. You know, he looks at me. He knew. Oh, he knew that. Yeah. He didn't like Little Rocket Man. Rocket Man was okay, but he didn't like. But just to go back with now, is this someone taking the presidency seriously? Well, I, I mean, it's, uh, you know, they're, uh, they're joke moments, uh, but this was not a joking issue. And if we play some of the other tapes of Trump telling me about that relationship, uh, it might be useful. Is this all designed to drive Kim to the negotiating no, table? No, no. It was designed for whatever reason. It was designed, who knows, instinctively. Let's talk instinct, okay? Because it's really about, yes, you don't know what's going to happen. But it was very rough rhetoric. The roughest. Again, part of the tragedy. Who knows? Who knows? You know, why are you doing this? What's your purpose? What's the strategy? What's the plan? Who knows? Uh, uh, it's instinct. But the CIA says about Kim Jong-un, you know, they do all this analysis and reporting that he's cunning, crafty, but ultimately stupid. I disagree. But, I, you know, I'm sure they tell you yeah, that. I hope you write that, and I hope you write my answer. I disagree. He's cunning, he's crafty, and he's very smart. And he's very, he's very tough, you know. Why does the CIA say that? Because they don't know, okay? Because they don't know. They have no idea. I'm the only one that knows. I'm the only one he deals with. He won't deal with anybody else. What do you make of that? I make of, this is the danger of Trump. Only I know. I'm the only one who knows. I've written uh, books uh, and reporting in the Washington Post about 10 presidents. I've, I've never heard of one say or imply to anyone that they're the only one that knows. Uh, in fact, it's uh, maybe some of them at times have thought that, but they realize, again, you need to open the door to other information, thoughts, and conclusions. You and I both worked at the Washington Post when Ben Bradley mm -hmm. was the editor. Ben, can you imagine Ben running? Only I know. <laughs> I mean, he would come. He would come and call you into his office. What do you know? What's going on? Pull up a chair, literally next to your computer. He, very hungry for information. Why? Because he knew that was the path, as he used to always say the truth emerges slowly, sometimes Fitfully. slowly. What do you think? You were really shouting at him. I was. To get in the word edgewise. You're shouting, though. It's really loud. It's okay. It's okay. You want to get more I know. information from him. Not like this, I not, agree. Not telling him what he needs but, to do. You kind of sounded like you were telling him what to do. Yeah, well, same, I kept, I kept, okay, but we're in a different world now, sweetie. So the, the, if, for those who couldn't quite make that out, you're saying that you're in a different world now with a guy like Trump, while Elsa you're, Walsh, your, your wife and herself, an extremely good reporter, is telling you that you were shouting at him and that I, I can't imagine, that's not your temperament so far as I know. 
No, that that's right. But but th- this was an interview April fifth. I had talked to Fauci and all the experts, and they told me, as I was saying, that you know he won't listen. Well, what won't he listen to? And I had fifteen things, and I literally went through them. Yeah, uh, with Trump, you need to coordinate internationally. Henry Kissinger just written an op-ed piece about that. Of course, Trump didn't. Oh, what Kissinger say? You were talking to the president of the United States in real time, constantly during this crisis, this extended crisis. And I wonder, are there was obviously you nailed down the date when he knew about this and, and it's and his, the seriousness of it. But how would you characterize the person you were talking with? his level of curiosity, engagement, seriousness. I mean, how would you characterize those those conversations overall? What he's serious about is himself. Again, to go to July of 2020, this is a point the virus had killed 140,000 people in this country. And talking to Trump on the phone, recording it. All of these are recorded Mm -hmm. with his permission. And I said, it's pretty bad. And he said, what are you talking about? What's bad? And I said, well, the virus. He said, oh, we've got it under control. Under control? I mean, I'm almost jumping through the phone. It's nothing under control. And he, he said, I mean, this is, listen to it. Hear him in his own voice. Well, I'll have a plan in 104 days. And he said, well, if I put it out now, what no one will remember. (laughs) And then I did the calculation. 104 days was election day. He's thinking about the election. Bob, you've been at this for over 50 years, this activity of, of, of reporting. And You've certainly reached the age of self-reflection. I, I wonder if you can if you can boil it down. What you think that have been your central achievements, and what did you miss or get wrong? Well, I got a lot of things wrong. What Carl uh, Bernstein and I tried to do in a piece we wrote for the Post, which is the new introduction to all the president's men, is draw the connection between. Nixon and Trump, and they are so many, it is really alarming. And what was Watergate? It was an effort to destroy the process of nominating and electing the president. What is it that Trump has done? It is, in the same way, destructive of the process of January 6th, which is in the Constitution and in the Electoral Act, laid out in great detail, this is how we decide who is president. The vice president, who's the president of the Senate, convenes the House and the Senate, and they count the electoral votes. And here was a an equivalent realization by Trump and others, that this is the soft spot. You know, if somehow we can get Pence to not count the votes or adjourn the meeting, just like 
Nixon, if he can just destroy the process the Democrat opposition party had in 1972 to nominate a strong candidate. I mean, it's devastating what Nixon did to destroy that process. And it is devastating what Trump did trying to destroy that process on January 6th. Finally, Bob, I want to ask an institutional question. The Washington Post, I think at, the, at this moment, after some really strong years, is struggling. It's losing subscribers by the hundreds of thousands. It's hemorrhaging talent. Its business leader, Fred Ryan, has failed to do for the Post what the leadership of the Times has done, and he also seems not to like journalism very much. The editor, Sally Busby, is confiding to reporters that she might be headed for the exits after just a year in place. You care about the Post a lot, and you probably remain, you definitely remain its most vivid figure. If you could tell Jeff Bezos anything about what to do about the Washington Post at the current moment, what would you say? Oh, boy. Um I've known Bezos for more than 20 years, and uh, I communicate with him, and it's clear to me he's aware that there's trouble, and uh, I think he's in, I know he's in a listening mode about uh, what people think, what those troubles are, where where they come from, uh, and uh, uh I know him well enough. He's not an impulsive person, but uh, can be very thorough. There is a, an awareness uh, that he has, and other levels in and outside the post that we've uh, that some repair work needs to be done. What that is, and how, and who is responsible. I'm on the sidelines. I'm in the old geezer class. And there's nothing worse than uh, the people uh, who've been there before coming along kind of saying, oh, well, when I was there, it was, uh, was different. So uh, I uh, am confident, confident that, and, and again, this, this is an interesting comparison to Trump. I, there are on these tapes discussions of Trump about Bezos, because Trump's telling me, oh, Bezos directs what you do. And I said, no, no. And he stays, keeps hands off. Oh, he said, I don't believe that. And uh, made it clear if he owned the Washington Post, he would have his hands around the throats of everyone to do what he wants. Just to be clear, you're talking to Bezos I'm just not going to say who uh, who I've talked to or how I do it. It's just like uh, the reporting. Uh, there are no Bezos tapes. <laughs> Bob Woodward, thanks so much. Thank you. Bob Woodward's new book, it's his 22nd, is called The Trump Tapes. The audiobook is available now, and the book is out in paperback this month. Mr. Woodward, the president. Hi, Bob. President Hi. Trump, how are you? How are you? Lindsay said, give you a call. I just spoke to a couple of people. I said, I just came back from two speeches, and I said, I got to call the man. What's going on? You doing okay? The uh, I am. I was wondering.
This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. More to come. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. When you see actor Danielle Brooks on the red carpet at the Oscars, she will be in full glamour and in grief. I've been with Sophia for so long, and I just know, like, after the Oscars, that chapter is really done, and that saddens me. I'm Kai Wright, a star of The Color Purple, honors the role that shaped her career. Next time on Notes from America. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Louisa Thomas covers sports for the New Yorker. Everything from the World Cup and the Olympics to the NFL and tennis and the Brittany Griner saga, even the World Chess Championship. We got together last week to talk about the year ahead in sports, but just the night before we spoke, DeMar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills suffered cardiac arrest after a tackle, and football fans all over America watched in horror. Louisa, you have an unusually intimate view of pro football, far more than most sports writers. Your husband was an offensive lineman for the Baltimore Ravens, John Urschel. He's also a mathematician, and he left the game some years back. He decided he'd had enough. What do you make of what happened to DeMar Hamlin, to say nothing of the countless head injuries that we've seen and pro football's seeming inability to guard itself and its players against the innate violence of the game? I mean, you said it yourself, it is innate in the game. It's intrinsic. Violence is part of football. It's part of why it's so exciting, to be honest. Um, It's part of why people are so drawn to it, because there are real stakes in those violent clashes. You know, when someone that you love, when a family member is on the field, yeah, football can feel different. I mean, you end a game And you take note of the score, but you also take note of whether anyone was injured and seriously injured. You once told me that to play a football game is to be in a car accident every single time. (laughs) Yeah. I do remember one day when um, John came back from a game and we were talking and suddenly he remembered his like shoulder hurt, you know, and he, you know, he'd separated joint. I mean, it was sort of this kind of like an afterthought. It was an afterthought because... You know, players are just in pain after games. And they're also just, like, so high in adrenaline. But but the point is they're, they're injured all the time. And they deal with pain that we can't even imagine. And they deal with 
risks that we can barely imagine. Is it a fantasy on the part of, you know, high-minded fans in the league to think that somehow you're going to make this game a hell of a lot safer than it is? Well, the game as we know it is a response to the incredible brutality of football. You know, at at the turn of the 20th century, players died all the time. Teddy Roosevelt summoned the various members of the <laughs> Harvard and Yale and everyone to discuss, you know, how what, what could be done about football because players were literally dying on the field. And that led to, for one, the invention of the Ford Pass. So it's not true to say that we can't do anything. Something has been done before. But I, it's hard to imagine that kind of radical change would take place. I mean, so because the, the pass was a way to avoid yes. injury. <laughs> To avoid and now death. you see people <laughs> yes. coming across the middle to get a, a pass, taking their life in their own hands. Yeah. So the thing that we always come back to is that what makes the game so exciting, the reason that football games are the most watched event in America, you know, year after year after year, is that they are live, they are dangerous, they are exciting, they are thrilling, and they are are violent. And you, it, we do ourselves a disservice to ignore that fact because um, that's what they are. And, you know, it's the reality that that's what people are drawn to. And players know what they're risking. I mean, it's, I, th- I don't think we should infantilize them to say that, you know, they don't really know what they're doing. They, they know, but, but yeah, my, it's, it's scary. I'm, I'm a little bit um, unnerved by this experience, just like everyone else. DeMar Hamlin's injury was a terrifying start to the year in sports. But I also want to know what else you're anticipating in 2023. We did just experience an astonishing World Cup, and soccer seemed maybe briefly to steal the show, even in this country. Do you see soccer, the other football, having a real impact on American life and maybe even cutting in on the NFL's popularity at some point? Oh, I think I. this is all... We're talking about relative degrees here. I think soccer is absolutely going to become much bigger in the United States. I really do think that. I also think that football, and particularly the NFL, is so big. We're talking magnitudes greater interest. There is so much attention that the NFL can lose a lot of fans. A lot of people can turn off their TV, and it will still be the biggest thing in the United States. The U.S. women's national soccer team had a very public fight for equal pay. We also saw players speaking out about Black Lives Matter. Do you see that trend continuing with the newer players that are coming up in women's soccer? Yeah, I think they grow up with the expectation that this is part of the job, honestly. And they are not afraid. I think that the challenge will be um, whether or not they take it a bit for granted. They have achieved what they set out to do. The remarkable thing is that they... They have equal pay. You know, does that mean that their job is, you know, quote unquote, done? I think that the ones who are inclined, you know, players like Mitch Purse, I think it, are natural leaders in, in social justice issues. And they will, you know, continue to use their platform to speak out on issues that they care about. Finally, the most important issue for 2023 is LeBron James headed back to Cleveland yet again. <laughs> You know what? The amazing thing about the NBA is that I don't think about LeBron James that much anymore. Don't tell him. The league doesn't <laughs> quite revolve, doesn't revolve around, him. around him anymore. Yeah. I mean, good on him. You know, he's 38 years old and still, you know, one of the best players 
in the NBA slash history, even at his current level. I got to say there's a player, Luka Doncic, and this guy, you look at him and the way he's playing, he's kind of like a slightly out of shape uncle figure. He looks like he's playing basketball in flip-flops. And the other night he had a game where he scored 60 points, 21 rebounds, 10 assists, and, and the statistics didn't even seem to tell the story he was so dominant. He actually forced overtime by intentionally missing a free throw. And he scored this kind of improbable shot. And then he did this like little shimmy, shimmy shake dance. It was too much. It was amazing. I mean, that guy is, that guy is just fun to watch. He reminds me kind of like a puppy dog. Like he's just, he just makes you smile. The, the, the player that excites me most to go see, I was lucky enough to go see the Knicks play the Memphis Grizzlies. I, I hope you were, I knew you were going to say him because he's the player who excites me the most too. Oh, John Morant is, it, it, the guy is insanely good, insanely good. And it makes me feel like I, I, I wish I were pulling in every Memphis Grizzly game. He's fearless. I mean, I think that a compilation of his misses would might be more exciting sighting of his compilation, compilation of his made dunks. I mean, this guy just <laughs> wants to jump over seven feet men. Like, it's just his thing. And he is not afraid. He's tiny. I mean, you know, not by, you know, human standards, but by NBA basketball standards. He's really small, and he can just pogo over, you know, centers. <laughs> like, it's nothing. But sadly, 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 the dominant team, and it kills me to say it, is the Boston Celtics. (laughs) And that was not, you know, people didn't really know what to expect. You know, they had a kind of rocky offseason, very rocky offseason. They came out of the, you know, the NBA finals looking kind of young and fresh, but but people really didn't know what to to expect. And they just burst out of the blocks. I mean, they just, um, with the best offense in the NBA. And, and, you know, they're sort of settling down, but they have, um, on any given night, with Jason and Jason Tatum, they have, you know, the guy who's probably the best player on the floor and they seem to be very well coached and yeah, they're incredibly exciting team. Louisa Thomas, thanks so much. Thank you. You can read Louisa Thomas on sports at newyorker.com. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards, with additional music by Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Rita Green, Adam Howard, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, Louis Mitchell, and Ngofen Mpujibwele, with guidance from Emily Botin and assistance from Harrison Keithline, Mike Kutchman, and Meher Bhatia. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Charina Endowment Fund. 